Hello and welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. In this week's episode, we welcome clinical psychologist and author Dr. Kyle Ortigo. Kyle is a licensed psychologist in California with over 14 years of clinical experience. His methodology is that of applying psychological concepts and scientific principles to improving experiences of individuals seeking mental health care, psychotherapy, and other modalities with a desire to improve their life course. He also specializes in psychedelic integration and meaning-making. Kyle is the author of the book Beyond the Narrow Life, A Guide to Psychedelic Integration and Existential Exploration, a comprehensive body of research and exercises that acts as a personal hero's journey, a must-have on any Psychonauts bookshelf. But before we get to it, for all things Pursuit of Infinity, visit our website, pursuitofinfinity.com, where we have all of our episodes and links for everywhere you can find us. So if you like what we do, head on over there and show us some support. We also really appreciate a follow or a sub as well as a five-star rating and maybe even some kind words of encouragement in the form of a review. These things really help us to expand our reach and credibility, which is so much appreciated. If you're feeling exceptionally magnanimous, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity, where you can donate as little as $2 a month to support what we do or just to keep up with us in another way. Check us out on YouTube. The channel is up, and all of our episodes are there, so if you prefer some visuals and to put some faces to the names, subscribe and keep up with us. We're also on Instagram, at Pursuit of Infinity Pod, so give us a follow and reach out, because we'd love to hear from you. Again, all of this can be accessed at PursuitofInfinity.com. And without further delay, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's discussion. For everyone listening, you will have heard a short introduction on this week's guest, but for those watching, welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. I'm your host, Josh, and joining me today is clinical psychologist and author, Dr. Kyle Ortigo. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Can you just give a brief background as to how you got into clinical psychology, um, your schooling, your training, and then how you sort of evolved into uh, psychedelics? Sure. I'll try to give a truncated version of that story. Uh, I am one of those rare birds in that I uh, knew I was going to be a psych major when I was in high school. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I knew I was wanting to go farther than that. But I got into the field because of a curiosity about the human mind, about personality. And I was actually doing some really interesting reading at the time in my literature courses. Bram Stoker's Dracula was one of those books, uh, Sylvia Plath, you know, some material that symbolically or with Sylvia Plath's example, uh, more directly dealt with mental health and psyche in some way and symbolism when it came to Dracula. So I was like, psychology is going to be helpful no matter what I choose to do. I'm always going to have to deal with myself and consciousness and, and other people. And so that was something that I decided early on. And then I did a lot of exploration in undergrad on other fields and um, got into film studies. So that's what got me to be introduced into Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, 
a lot of the comparative mythology ideas and that sort of interpretation of film as our modern myth. And uh, if I hadn't done that in my mainstream psychology courses, I would never have come across Jung, really, besides maybe a couple footnotes. Um, but then I decided to choose the clinical psychology route because it gave me a focus and was broad enough that I could do a number of things like teaching, research, and clinical work. And went to Emory University in Atlanta to do that work and added a specialization in trauma in addition to personality. And that led me out here into the Bay Area. And I, I did a few years at the VA in Palo Alto VA in San Francisco VA adding things like substance use and addiction specialties. And it was through that winding road that I connected with uh, my peers and, and friends at UCSF who were doing research in psychedelic psychotherapy, um, both with MDMA and with psilocybin. Uh, and the psilocybin included a group psychotherapy uh, format too, which was pretty distinct in terms of the mainstream research at the time. So that is a quick version of how I got into this broader field, um, but we can go on any of those off-ramps as we discuss. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, one of those off-ramps I would like to go on at some point is Jung. I'm glad you brought him up because uh, it seems like everybody in this field uh, has been inspired by Jung. But uh, I do have your book here, Beyond the Narrow Life, a guide for psychedelic exploration and uh, uh, psychedelic integration and existential exploration. So this book is amazing. It's a juggernaut. Um, I have like all my tabs here for like all of the stuff, the, all of the exercises, because I didn't want to write in the book, because I definitely plan to have this book being one of the ones that I reread, because the info in this is just so good. Um, it's, it's something that I feel like at any stage you're at in existential exploration or psychedelic integration, this book has something to offer for you to read and reread. Um, so why don't we start by picking apart this title a bit more. Uh, psychedelic integration and existential exploration. To me, they are two different sides of the same coin. Um, but could you give us a brief explanation as to why you chose these two things and to what they are? Mm-hmm. Well, first off, thank you for those kind words. Um, you know, when you're writing a book, it's a, a solo activity um, beyond your, your friends and peers who are kind enough to give you feedback. And you never really know what it's going to, uh, what impact it's going to have when it's out there in the world. So that, that means a lot as an author. And the title, you know, it, it was a creative project for me in many ways. It, it's definitely informed by my academic work and my professional work. But it's creative in that it's bringing together so many different areas of interest and passions and places of curiosity for myself. And one of those um, parallels, um, besides Jung and Campbell that I alluded to, is kind of existential thought. And I mean it more so in our field of clinical psychology, how we help people explore these existential ideas and embrace some of these um, concepts and values of authenticity, freedom with responsibility, right? But certainly informed and inspired by a lot of existential philosophy. How I think psychedelics really interact with this is that the non-ordinary states of consciousness that we can access in a variety of ways, including the most accessible dreams, 
when we can remember them, but also breath work of various kinds. And through classic psychedelics, ketamine, MDMA, um, which are not classic psychedelics, but also pathways, we we just realize just how um, mysterious and uh, unknowable the psyche seems to be, even when we're going inside our own mind, that there are experiences and connections, associations, images, all sorts of symbolic material that is a treasure trove to explore. But alongside that, sometimes can be things that can be scary because it's outside of our normal everyday sense of self, maybe, or our sense of groundedness and our shared reality. So psychedelic experiences, part of how they can be healing and part of how they can be transformative is they kind of shake the snow globe, as some people like to, to say in the um, research world primarily, so that we open up the mind to other possibilities and realize what we don't know. I believe that existential psychotherapy and existential frameworks are also about that, kind of shaking us out of our kind of prepackaged ideas of what it means to be alive, what it means to be conscious, a person, a citizen of a society in relationships, and kind of forces us to confront some questions around ambiguity and questions around meaning, connection, um, and interconnectedness that are just part of life. So I, I found the existential side of things to overlap conceptually and in an experience, but also be much more about what do we do with this? <laughs> How does it impact our life? And that is the whole point of psychedelic integration is moving from the experience of a non-ordinary state or the experience of any powerful life-changing uh, uh, event that happens for us. How do we integrate that into our life? That may be our daily life, weekly life. Certainly, it often involves somehow our relationships with ourselves, with other people, and um, our careers. Like all these big questions, even um, going to questions about the cosmos, which is where I start my book, um, because it's kind of the unexpected place for a psychologist to start a book. I love that you started with the cosmos um, and the fact that one of the very first exercises was to watch uh, Carl Sagan's uh, episode one of the cosmos because I've seen the Neil deGrasse Tyson version and it's cool. But the Carl Sagan version, for some reason, just like captured a sort of magic that the Neil deGrasse Tyson version didn't. And right when I uh, did that first exercise, I knew this book was going to be like monumental for me. Um, and and you saw, and as everyone will have saw who's watching, all those tabs that I had, which were, you know, written exercises. So was that part of the initial planning? Was that always going to be part of the book or did that kind of evolve? That was always going to be part of the book. Yeah. Um, and that that first core chapter on cosmic awareness was the one I, I wrote all the chapters pretty much in order with a few exceptions. And that was one of my first chapters. And that for me was my proof of concept. <laughs> like, could I pull this together? And so the activities were always going to be a part of it, the end of the chapter activities where I, I give people like a menu of options to see how they want to explore. Um, you know, curiosity is one of those metaphorical allies I mentioned in the book and to start off with. And it's really important in my field as a psychologist 
to make people feel engaged, have that sense of agency and choice, because that's important to to most of us, uh, even though there can be a shadow side of that with the responsibility and certainty about choice. But it is, in general, a very positive thing for us to get in touch with and to take some ownership of our experience. So the question for myself was, how can I make sure that people feel like they have a choice and they have the agency while reading a book? So it's not just a passive process in hearing what I think, what I believe, um, even if it's reading between the lines, but exploring for themselves. So that was a, a core um, part of the book from the beginning. And as I wrote it, um, I decided to add even more activities throughout because that was very creative for me. Like that. And I, the joy of creativity, um, that part of the, the process was something that, that fueled the, the journey for myself. So I added more than even I was anticipating um, when I first planned the book. And that's why I added things to break up each of the chapters because they're, they're pretty heavy chapters. <laughs> I, I think your yeah, description is a good one, right? And uh, this is not a book to read quickly. Uh, you're not going to get as much out of it. It can be a bit overwhelming. And that's also why I wanted activities to be a part of it. Just like in therapy, just like in anything, really, I think that that's, you're truly engaging with, it takes time. And there's the parts that you're consciously processing and thinking about and reading and learning. And there's all that background processing that happens. That's really where the magic is. And another theme that I've noticed and that, I mean, you laid out uh, quite frankly in the beginning of the book was the fact that it was structured according to like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey myth. Uh, where did that um, begin for you? Where did that process start of uh, deciding to include all of that in there? Mm-hmm. That was also from the very beginning for me too. Yeah, I, I took these inspirations from these different areas of my life and that quick overview of kind of my trajectory. I, I touched upon several of them. Um, in Campbell and, and Jung, uh, the cosmos, like all, all that stuff, were things that were not discussed really at all in my mainstream psychology practice. Like all, I don't know, I was in school a long time, <laughs> 10, 12 years, however long it was. It was a time where I was not counting down because it was too long. But in all that time, like it just wasn't spoken about. So this was an opportunity to bring those in. So that's why they were a part of the book from the beginning because the book was an opportunity for me to integrate those into these other interests and, and to see that. So it's an interesting experience now being in the psychedelic world and as they're becoming more mainstream that you know everyone's talking about you. Many more people are talking about Campbell than they ever were before. And so I'm in the other side of, um, of this shift. But Jung and Campbell made a big impact on me uh, when I came across their work. And again, it was in my film studies work. I had a wonderful mentor in that, uh, Janice Hawker Rushing, and her husband, uh, Thomas Frentz. And that was a very personal thing. I mentioned them specifically because of the huge impact they had on me, but also because Janice died suddenly of cancer when I was working with her. And uh, that was a very direct confrontation with mortality, a lot of the, the existential themes I already alluded to. 
but there was a very special mentorship relationship I developed with her husband, who also happened to be a professor in the film studies department. And we were working through, um, in my first publication was actually in, in film. I, I looked at the alien series, uh, with Sigourney Weaver and tried to think about what her process of individuation would be in the film, what was being charted there. And I won't go into the details of that, but that idea of individuation, the union concept of how over our entire lifespans, we become more psychologically whole to varying degrees. That always resonated with me because unlike a lot of the theories about development and, and uh, personality, Jung did not believe we ended or stopped developing at teenage years or even earlier, right? He believed that we continued to grow. And so I really held on to that, that concept and the places where that was present for me. And that, that started really in depth with Jung and, and outlining that process of individuation and brought that to my work um, into my personal life. As I went through my own quarter-life crisis, existential crises don't happen just in midlife anymore. Um, so is again, that lived experience of some of these difficult things that we have to confront at various ages and time points in our lives. That brought me there. Campbell was interesting in that he was also inspired by a lot of the same people, including you. But his project was trying to see if there was an underlying um, mythology that connected all the major world religions and myths and stories in a meaningful way, right? Most of your readers probably know that. I, certain, I know you didn't know that already, but that project is one. Um, we can talk about some of the criticisms of Joseph Campbell. That project is one that I'm definitely behind. Uh, I think it's, again, a very ambitious one. But I do believe we need stories and narratives and ways to connect across all the diverse communities and worlds across time uh, in, in this modern world, probably more so than ever for a lot of those global existential crises that we're facing. So it was a way to bring some of the, the individual focus work in psychology and about healing and helping individuals to the collective level. And that's why those two really influenced me and worked together and was really foundational. Why I thought the hero's journey would be helpful, especially for this book, is because given how ambitious all the major topics were that I knew I wanted to go into, I needed a narrative of some kind, right, to help the reader along, to help myself organize all these big chunks of areas of exploration, these concepts. And the story that I, I wanted to use was, was one that has resonated with a lot of us in a very broad strokes way, the Joseph Kimball's hero's journey, the idea broadly of the monomyth, and the three major phases of that, the departure, the trials of initiation, and the return where um, one reintegrates in community, protects the community from some threat. So it, it's just an awesome story uh, for those of us that, that like a lot of classic mythology and those of us who like Star Wars, you know, it's influenced so much film in the West and in America. Um, so it's easy to kind of 
understand that, even if you haven't heard about Campbell, you can latch onto that. And, and then I, I kind of made it my own, again, that creative process, not as a way to assert that, you know, this is the right or the only story that needs to be told, because that was never Campbell's idea either. It was that we have all these stories and variations of these stories that are kind of pointing to some major themes and something that he thinks points to truth. And, and so I, I think that's something that gets lost, but I, I think we can take inspiration from a lot of people and then kind of push the needle a little bit further or make it our own. And that creative process, not to skip ahead too much, but I end the book um, really focusing on creativity. Uh, that is, I think, what we need and what can be um, important in so many different ways for healing, for transformation, for sharing our gifts with others, um, and for problem solving these threats that we were having to face. Yeah, one of the most like disheartening and really heartening uh, things about going down the path of self-actualization, individuation, is realizing that our society handles myth as if it's like some sort of a fairy tale or something like that. And when you realize that myth is so deep, I mean, the deepest archetypes of our storytelling and how we act and how we, how we react to external stimuli are based in these myths, which is why I say heartening because the mysteries go so much deeper than I previously thought that they would. Because when you start diving into myth, I mean, it's just an endless amount of interpretations that you can, uh, you can uncover from these things. Um, but you mentioned the existential issues of our time. Um, as a psychologist, how would you diagnose uh, like the West's affliction of extreme polarization and everything you're seeing going on right now in the world? It is a great question. And, you know, part of our ethical code in psychology is that we don't diagnose from afar. So if we have a, a figure, like a public figure that we don't know personally, we haven't done an assessment with, we, we don't diagnose. So um, I'll say that doesn't apply so much here because we're talking about society um, as a Westerner kind of diagnosing some of the ills of, of my own culture right now. Um, you know, there, there's lots out there uh, written about already, uh, about many of the challenges that we face. The one that stands out to me that is deeply concerning is that polarization and this kind of collective in-group, out-group, black and white thinking, like where there, there are only two options, nothing, uh, complexity is not really valued. And there are reasons for that. Complexity makes us confront ambiguity, and ambiguity often triggers uncertainty and anxiety, right? That's a simplified narrative of it, but that is how we often think about it in the field. And as more threats are perceived, the more that we can go back to, one option is to go back to these um, more oversimplified ways of defending ourselves or our culture. And that's why, you know, this, this idea kind of applies to sexism, racism, homophobia, et cetera. Certainly in, in United States, Republican versus Democrat. But let's, you know, stop that. You go within any of those groups, 
there are splinters too. And those differences can get exaggerated. And it's not that those differences aren't real, they don't exist, but they, they are polarizing us in a way that we can't even see the humanity in the other sometimes. We can't even respect the complexity of some of these issues so that we can have a, a productive dialogue um, across different identity groups. And that's deeply concerning to me because in order for us to, to really function, even at a status quo level, we need to maintain some level of that cooperation. And to grow, develop as a society, we need to be able to stay nimble, I think, and flexible and, and really value diversity, understand what diversity does for us and that we, we need engineers and we need psychologists, right? We need, um, and we need psychologists to appreciate the engineers and vice versa. As just one simple example, uh, because the problems that we face are complex ones. So that, that I think, is of, of concern. Um, there are many others I, I point to in, in the book, but I, I say this, and I think it's helpful to talk about these things in a way that we don't collapse again and with that anxiety. We don't kind of give up, feel powerless. Like this is an opportunity for us if we can face those things that do provoke some natural concern, some anxiety. If it's at a level, you know, that sweet spot, then that is part of our motivation to actually do the problem solving, to make some changes that are needed. And so that that's what I, I hope to inspire in myself and in others and people I work with and through the book that, you know, pick pick an area to focus in, work on that. You know, doing a podcast is part of that public education, like being a voice for some of these questions that may be your role to play. But there are many roles to play and we need a lot of people to feel inspired enough to do it. So there's my uh, <laughs> at least right now, my answer to the diagnosis and, you know, a proposed solution. Part of that, at least. I've heard you speak about. um like as an existential problem of the world and society, um, shadow projection. Speaking of a place to start, you know, starting with your own shadow. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what shadow work is? I know it's a, almost a buzzword now, nowadays. A lot of people talk about, oh, my shadow and this and that. But I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of it. So can you clear up a few things for me and uh, just sort of outline what shadow work is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is something that I've I've heard spoken about a lot more than ever before too. So uh like many abstract concepts it it can get kind of bandied about. But from my reading of Jung and how I conceptually um use it in my work in my practice both with myself and with others is that like most of these concepts, we need to think about the different levels that we're talking about. So in the individual like consciousness level, personal psyche level, the shadow is the parts of ourselves that we're unaware of uh, and often we're unaware of because they are perceived by our, our conscious self, our everyday identity and our, our ego as threatening in some way or other um, or something that's counter to our conscious values and how we want to be or how we want to be perceived. So shadow work in that sense is being able to look in the mirror in a way 
that reflects more of reality. And part of that is like our actual behavior, our actual life choices, you know, that may not align with how we want to be. So that's difficult work. Um, it may also be about what are some of our motivations that we have within us. We may not be acting them out, but they're still within us. That, like aggression. If we're a very kind person, aggression is still somewhere in us. It's just part of being human. So how do we become aware of that in a way that it's more conscious, that can be painful in some ways, if it's things that we, we don't like about ourselves. But when it's more conscious, it's more under our influence in some way. We can channel it. We can be aware of it. So it's not acted out or projected onto others. And the projection part of it is very much related to that polarization we were talking about earlier. So the things that I don't like about myself, or I, I even if they're buried within, I project on to other people. It's easiest to project that onto other people that are either very different and separate from us, so we don't have a relationship with them, and we have no motivation um, not to project onto them. They're easy. That's the in-group, out-group. So the out-group is easy to project on. Another easier target, um, kind of paradoxically, might be people that we're, we're closer to, family members or a long-term partner, right? Because they're the, the ones there all the time. So that, that can be a target as well. So the idea of shadow work in the personal level is bringing awareness to that. And then if there's sometimes some helpful things from our shadow, so like the aggression, I'll stick with that example. Like aggression has a, a place in, in our lives and, and in the world if we're in a place where we're having to protect ourselves um, from the aggression of others. It's not that we want to go tit for tat and then escalate that. But there's maybe a little bit of that energy that will help us set better boundaries, healthier boundaries with people who are being more assertive and then we're being passive and just pleasing them, right? As one dynamic. So uh, that's a little bit about the personal shadow. The collective shadow is where Jung, oh, and Jung called that um, the shadow work and the shadow a moral problem because it directly confronts some of our conscious ethics, right? Our conscious values. At the collective level, these things just go to a, a greater extreme. Um, and that's, that's where we confront more of like the, the group dynamics, the cultural divides, things like that, and where the mythic shadow lives, the mythic idea of um, some variations and other archetypes to like the trickster that can have a, a shadow side, um, like a shapeshifter. Uh, and this is where we get into more of the question of the problem of evil in some way. And these, these deeper philosophical, even all the way to kind of cosmic uh, questions that are not as simple as doing shadow work. You know, you, you got to be more assertive, something like that at the personal level. So I, I find it very important to like distinguish between these things because sometimes how I hear it spoken about in the field, besides it being just kind of abstract, is that the shadow is, that somehow shadow work is, you know, a little bit difficult, but in the end, it's great. It's, it's good. You, you find your, what's called the golden shadow, 
all those good things about yourself and the unconscious that you you weren't aware of before. So then then you you have all this extra talent or, or power or influence or something like that. And that's definitely not how you talked about. It. That's definitely not how I see it. Um, that if it's really shadow work, there are going to be confrontations with uh, painful emotions, uh, even shame that can come up. And um, that's okay. <laughs> that's to be expected. Um, but that's why it's, it's challenging. And that's why you said a, a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people don't do the process of individuation because that's one of the first um, real stages, quote unquote, of that process. I've heard the shadow be referred to, which really resonated with me, honestly, as like a fear of one's potential, like a fear of one's greatness. And I know that in your book, you outlined what's called the Jonah complex, which is a similar concept to that. Uh, can you kind of unpack what the Jonah complex is and talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. The Jonah complex uh, is a a really helpful kind of way of describing how when we don't live up to that potential and the potential being maybe communicated by our dreams or our inner um, voice, you know, the daemon is, is one name for it, right? And that's pointed to, that's pushing us to do something that often is a little scary in some ways. So that made, for me, that definitely was writing this book. That was a little scary for me. <laughs> I did not want any more attention than I was already getting. I, I like to have conversations as a psychologist, as a therapist with my clients that are private. You know, this this stuff was not what I was really wanting to do, but I felt compelled. Like it was something, felt like it was being written through me in many ways. So as a, you know, very rational academic, that was a different experience than when I had to write. Uh, uh, research papers and, and submit those to journal articles. If so, using myself as an example with that, I had the option, I had the choice still to say no to that. And we all do. We can fill a calling. We may have wanted to be a poet and we decided that we needed to go into finance because we can make more money that way. Um, if we, and that may have been a fine choice in many ways. But if we completely stopped writing poetry, then there is a way that that gets thwarted, that part of ourself gets thwarted and gets blocked. And the Jonah complex is when, you know, someone says no to doing that, that thing that's a little scary, taking that leap of faith in, in their work or their passion. And they get blocked. And instead of necessarily becoming depressed in the way that they feel really down and unmotivated or just dissatisfied in life. They may feel those things, but it also often results in someone being very hypercritical. So they're probably going to be the ones that write um, one-star reviews on, on movies. They're the ones that complain a lot to their, about their friends who are doing something crazy like quitting their job and you know doing nonprofit work or whatever it is. Because they're projecting that, um, you know, pain of not having made that choice themselves, right? So, so that that's man manifested, I think, too, in the hero's journey. Campbell talks about the refusal of the call when the hero, the protagonist, um, is so reluctant. They 
they don't respond to the call to the adventure. They say, no, I'm, I'm going to uh, not wake up in the matrix. That stuff's scary. I'm going to stay inside, right? Uh, that is the refusal of the call. That is the Jonah complex is kind of the result of that. Uh, is that at least dissatisfaction often the projection of that criticism onto others? Yeah, because answering the call has its own form of trials and tribulations, but not answering the call also does. And often, at least in Campbell's view, if I'm not mistaken, leads to suffering. Yes, suffering and in some myths, death, death of the person. Like it's that stark. So. Uh, it, and then it's interesting to phrase it in that way, too, because this the sense of holding on too tightly to our sense of self or a safe version of that, that in a, in a safer life that can actually backfire and cause more suffering than even taking that risk. And that's not to say that we need to take all those leaps. We need to quit our jobs or do anything that that that's part of the shadow too of like the psychedelic work and these experiences, even when they're really positive is that some people can impulsively make these decisions. So we're not saying that, but really being conscious about where we're being pulled and then examining that and then planning for it as best we can. Um, You know, the hero doesn't immediately confront the, the, shadow the cultural shadow in the story he he or she might uh but then they usually fail and they have to go back and and find a mentor and and go through some trials and and training but that part is important right you can't just skip to the end of the story we have to go through that process of honing our skills and and um, getting support too right we often talk about as an individual journey but it's not we, we all need others, and luckily there are others out there that, that can help us. Yeah, I feel like that's another issue with society sort of at large and where our culture is heading, is people don't want to put in the work. We just want like a, a magic bullet. They want, you know, a, just like a quick hit answer, you know, something like that, a, a self-help book that is going to solve all their problems. But uh, there is no magic bullet, and people often look at psychedelics as a magic bullet as well which can be a dangerous prospect. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, that whatever we project that magic bullet fantasy onto changes over time, right? We may get to the place, and I know a lot of people are thinking now we're about at the peak hype part of the, the phase of adopting a, a new thing, at least in our uh, mainstream American culture where the shine of psychedelics will kind of be removed and then we'll get into, okay, what it's helpful in these ways, or we can make sure that we reduce the risk in these ways. Um, but it's not the magic bullet. So we're, we're getting there. But then that, that fantasy of a magic bullet will just go on to whatever the next thing is. Um, AI is, is definitely <laughs> up there for a lot of various projections too. Um, so that's just a part of the process that I think we really can't avoid in many ways. But there are some risks when we're projecting any of these fantasies onto something that's very powerful and is a quick fix. 
um, as an opportunity to kind of maximize, optimize us, right, in our lives, is that things just take time. And it would be nice if we did have magical cures in some way to many of the things that, that challenge us. Just speaking personally as, as a human being, of course, and it'd be nice. And that's just not how the world works and how reality is. And that's part of what we have to confront so that we can kind of mature and put in the work and in the directions that we find valuable and meaningful to do so. Because we do have to make choices in how we focus our time. But it is especially challenging now with all the distractions and how easily we can get those dopamine hits. So it, it's, it's not something that I think we'll be able to cure right in and of itself. Uh, but this is some, something just to keep an eye on and to find ways that we can practice and cultivate more of that patience, more of a, a focus and make conscious choices versus being ruled by the things that are always distracting us. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned before um, boundaries and uh, balancing, um, at least for me, something that came up for me in the book, what I was working through and what I've been working through for a little while, um, it's been prevalent in my life, has been creating boundaries. And the balance of being there for people and being of service, but also having those boundaries set in a responsible and effective way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, boundaries are talked about a lot too in, in a way that can feel vague, like shadow work. Uh, and there are reasons for these things because it, it's very individual about the specifics, right? Of what, what, the boundaries need to be adjusted. I like metaphors uh, a lot of times, and I like them with, with the idea of boundaries because boundaries can be too loose where we just hear and accept like all the energy from others, respond to everyone else's um, behavior and their requests and forget ourself and forget our, our need to, to be by ourselves, to ha have our own needs met, et cetera. Uh, and they can also be too rigid. And I don't hear that a lot, um, but that's possible. Like we can have boundaries that are up so much that we're not connecting with people in an authentic or genuine way. So, you know, Brene Brown's work has become very popular when she's talking about vulnerability. And she has some more sophisticated ways of talking about it um, where it's actually not that you want to be vulnerable with people in emotive all the time, everywhere with everyone, right? We have to make conscious choices about when to, to loosen some of our, our boundaries so that there can be a genuine relating and when to contract and to do that, that work of recharging, uh, recharging our batteries, filling up our cup again, uh, receiving some of that care from others. So it's another place where we have to see where we're at now in our journey with that, because it's, it's not that we find that sweet spot and then we stick with it. Life continues to go on. We continue to change. Our relationships change. And there are times that we may have been more on the, the self-protective rigid place. 
and then we we need to loosen up and there are times that we're too loose and we got to find so it's a pendulum and hopefully we find more in in that process of being able to stay in the middle and adapt to what's needed at the time and some people find great purpose in serving others and being there for their family and and all of that um which I definitely understand it's a it's a great aspect of you know, like you said, having a balanced sense of boundaries, not too rigid, not too loose. Um, and I've also noticed, um, not to change the subject too much, but something that's been really on my mind has been uh, a, a crisis of meaning, not for me personally. Um, I do know a person who is going through uh, like a very intense crisis of meaning, um, existentially just not understanding what they're here for, um, not being able to form connections and bonds with people that give them a sense of meaning that uh, gives them the self-worth to carry on, things like that. So how do you approach a situation? Because as a friend, I don't really know how to help, you know, what to say and when to say it. So not that I'm asking you to like, tell me what to tell him, <laughs> but um what do you suggest people do when they start to have that crisis of meaning? Mm -hmm. It can be a very unsettling time, right? Because it, it meaning and connecting to meaning is so foundational to being able to just weather the storm of life and change and stress and challenges. Uh, so it, it's a delicate time. I, when it's accessible, which is not as much as we'd like it to be, therapy can certainly play a role here because it's a different type of relationship than with our friends and with our, our family. But oftentimes when someone's confronting really any of these bigger existential issues, um, but meaning especially we can jump to problem solving. We can jump to offering kind of our take on what's meaningful. Um, you know, and there are all these aphorisms and these things like I actually kind of agree with like all is love or the meaning of life is life itself. Like all that stuff sounds good. And I have a hard time refuting it based on my own experience and journey. But saying that to someone in a crisis of meaning is not going to be helpful. It, and it can be invalidating and shut them down. Uh, and then it can, you can easily get into this polarized place, right? Where they're the one holding that sense of nothing is meaningful, nothing at all. And then we're like, no, everything's meaningful. And we're not really meeting each other. We're at. So I think a lot of times it's, bringing that attitude of curiosity into the conversation to relating with someone like really hearing what does it mean when you're saying there's no meaning in life or i don't know what my purpose is um what did you used to find purpose in like why has that changed like really going into if they're in a relationship like this is a friend of yours that there's obviously trust some relationship um, capital that's been built over time just being a, a place where someone can really express all of what's going on for them um, and not get just the problem solving is a really powerful thing that is uh, 
misunderstood a lot, I think. And as those of us who are used to engaging intellectually or problem solving, it's very hard to kind of step out of that and just be with someone. There is a difference too in having empathy and having compassion. And people have different definitions of these things. But I think part of the boundary for us as people that are caring for others or being in that supportive role is to be able to have um, that place, that attitude of compassion, understanding the suffering and the pain in someone else and being present for it without over-identifying with ourselves where our own issues get triggered or our own emotions. Like that, that drains the cup, um, if we use that metaphor. So, you know, this, this is an opportunity where those boundaries come into play. Like, what is the nature of the boundary? Well, if you have a friend who's going through this crisis, you don't need to be on a phone call with them for three hours a day trying to support them. Um, that's rarely needed or helpful, right? If someone's just kind of spinning their wheels in that sort of way. Uh, if you're on a call with them, uh, even if it's short, you need to be able to be present emotionally enough where you're actually listening, being focused on being on your phone at the same time, playing video games at the same time. Those things are easy to do now, right? As, as we're separated, but still able to talk with one another. Um, but not get so wrapped up into our own kind of mirroring of that, that anxiety and that, that pain that it begins to, to be something we bring home with us or we keep alive ourselves and then kind of colors our world. So this, this is all pretty abstract, but sometimes that's, that's, these are the questions that we have to kind of ask ourselves. You know, are we actually being helpful? And in what way are we being helpful? It's probably not problem solving. And maybe helping them connect to resources, to other people that have gone through things that they've gone through, um, to professionals, uh, if, if they're open to it, you know, some, some resources online, there are crisis hotlines everywhere now, thankfully, chat lines too. Like, and, and that has a role to play too. It can be easier sometimes, paradoxically, for some people to talk to a stranger. Talk to someone that they don't have that trust, automatic kind of history and trust with. You know, there are some things that are a bit more simplified there. But those are some of the things that come to mind for that person. But giving them a sense of enough hope that it may be very murky now, but you can find your way through it. That other people have found their way through it. Um, that in some ways, maybe they're on the right path for them to be confronting something like this. That is the whole idea of the trials, right? That we have to go through in that monomyth, that there are challenging moments, um, days, weeks. But if we're confronting these big questions and really actively exploring possible answers, honestly, authentically, then we can find our way through that. We're not alone. Yeah. And oftentimes, these types of crises can indicate a sense of transformation, a sense of imminent transformation, um, which can bring about a lot of fear <clears throat> and can actually bring about um, 
a sense of that Jonah complex, you know, because if you do sense yourself uh, approaching a transformation, you might be scared of the potential of what that might cause or of where that might take you, whether it be positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's this idea of like the challenge of psychedelics only involved when there are, are difficult journeys or anxiety comes up in a journey. But this is one of those challenges of a very positive, we'll, we'll say that classic, since it's been written about a lot, that classic mystical-like experience that people can have with the uh, sense of oneness and all is love and all that, that can be challenging and threatening if we go back into a world and relationships that are imperfect, because we all do, right? And that contrast can actually, for some people, create a, a crisis. And that's part of the integration um, process too for them. That's part of their journey of like, well, how do I, you know, use that as as some fuel for doing some of the work I need to do in the world, be in my relationships, live in this imperfect world, um, while still finding beauty, still finding that sense of connection and meaning. So. There are many challenges that come up along the way, but many ways that we just weave those into our narratives and our understanding of ourselves in the world and and hopefully creating a, a beautiful, worthwhile story along the way. It also brings to mind uh, the mantra that you had described um, in the book as a form of helping to get through difficult times, whether it be in your normal waking life or during a psychedelic experience experience, which was um, in and through. And I just love that mantra. It's beautiful because it really gives you like a sense of, um, like determination, but in like a compassionate type of way to get through whatever you're getting through. Mm -hmm. I, I love that one too. And I first got that from my mentor and friend, Dr. Bill Richards, and there are others, uh, trust, let go, be open, TLO, that's one, in and through. Those are some that are given for people as they're about to go into a psychedelic journey. And, and, and they just apply to life in general. So, But in and through has always been my favorite because it's also embedded within that saying that we don't need to shut out or avoid whatever it is that's challenging. There, there's meaning there to uncover. There's an experience there that we're having that is necessary in some way. Otherwise it, it wouldn't be present. It's trying to tell us something, but we also don't have to get stuck in it. So we're not avoiding, but we're not getting stuck in it. And time passes. That's one thing that we can rely on. That's um, part of the impermanence, the, the flow of life. And so some people, this is coming from another world um, within psychology, but some people like the, mantra of no, no feeling is final. Have you heard of that one before? I have it, but I like that. Yeah, it's a good one too. You know, just some quick reminders for us that, you know, these, these things uh, change for better, or for worse. But if we stay present, we will notice that change. We will make it through. Another great quote from your book, or it wasn't really a quote. It was more of, um, a description of integration um, by Houston Smith, who was a religious scholar, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he said something along the lines of like, uh, integration is 
like turning a spiritual experience into a spiritual life. And I really, really love that because it really just, I mean, even if it's not spiritual, just turning any experience into life, translating it into life, I think is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah, his original quote was turning a religious experience into a religious life. And, um, you know, that that's a word that has a lot of baggage. <laughs> so uh, spiritual was, was my compromise in that. Um, but it is true beyond these spiritual religious experiences that people can have. How do we bring these empowering experiences, experiences of mystery, uh, experiences of meaning into our lives so that we can use those same adjectives and descriptors of the life that we're choosing to live for ourselves. And that that's inspiring to me. You know, we, we can do that. And there, there are ways we can inspire other people to do that too. And that's really, I think, the promise of this work is that this individual healing that's possible for people in a variety of ways is something that, that can spread, right? Because if it's, it's true healing and transformation, it affects our relationships in our world too. It's not solely internal, right? It's not intellectualized. It's something that influences our people. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, as we begin to uh, approach an hour here, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and I just want to ask you one more question. Um, if you have any advice or any wisdom, um, any last words that you want to impart on uh, myself and the audience, what would that be? The one that comes to mind is, you know, these are a lot of big ideas and, and ideas that are, are challenging, experiences that are challenging. Uh, the wisdom of pacing ourselves. We need to be able to pace ourselves. And that is one of these challenges with the impatience that most of us have these days, the distractions that we have, all the competing um, demands for our attention and tasks that we have to do. I wrote this book um, hoping to the universe that people were not trying to read it within one week, <laughs> as an example, um, that there's just too much there that comes from years and years of me reflecting on these things and working through these things and my own experiences that um, I wanted to to help translate that uh, in, in this book. And similarly in my work as a psychologist with my clients and in my work in, in teaching others, other providers, uh, to do that in a way that I can streamline it. But also we can't rush to the end. We can't rush to the end of the journey. That is not the point of a story or a journey to begin with, right? And so when there are times, if we're really being mindful and we check in with ourselves, we get a sense of like, what are our battery levels like? You know, what are our needs in this moment? And we got to pay attention to that while not losing sight of the big picture and the things that we're exploring at this time in our lives. So pacing is so important. And that is how we find that sweet spot between being activated enough that, that we're using our energy and channeling it and not being on the other extreme of just being overwhelmed and frozen in fear and anxiety. So when in doubt, think about the pace. 
Well, you've done a beautiful job of exemplifying uh, that and all of the things that we've talked about today in your book. Um, can you just uh, tell people where they can find you? Sure. Uh, so I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I have a practice in Palo Alto, California, but people can find out about me and my work. I have a website, existentialexploration.org. And um, of course, the, the greatest capture of my thoughts and reflections in this area is what we've been talking about, Beyond the Narrow Life, a guide for psychedelic integration and existential exploration, which is at any of those bookstores. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Kyle. I really appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate being able to just talk about and converse with these big ideas. I'm, I'm so grateful that you found the book helpful. <laughs> <laughs>